So turns out the Fed raised interest rates without anybody really noticing. Huh, funny. When the Fed actually does something that everyone needs to know about, no one knows about it at all. What's up? My name is Matthew Spazzitti, and welcome back for another episode of the Matthew Spazzitti program where we talk about financial freedom and economics. Hope you guys are having a great day today. And so far, my week has been great. You know, overall, it hasn't been too, too bad. And uh, yeah, I can't really uh, can't really complain. I do apologize. I didn't post an episode last week. There was uh, there was a reason for that. You know, first and foremost, I should have let you guys know that I wasn't going to be able to. Um, frankly, at the time, I didn't actually know that I wasn't going to be able to do an episode. So for, so I do apologize for that. Uh, last week, uh, or last weekend, I should say, on the 18th, that was my my wife and I's uh, 10-year wedding anniversary. So that's pretty cool. Um, absolutely, this is great. I, I can't believe it's been 10 years. Everything, you know, it's just been great. The whole thing is, you know, marriage, it's all been absolutely wonderful. My wife is great and everything. And if anything, our, our relationship is stronger 10 years into our marriage than it was when we, uh, when we first started. So it was, it's absolutely amazing. So yeah, so we were celebrating our 10 year wedding anniversary. And then that weekend it was Father's Day. So I kind of, I create, I, I did record an episode, but unfortunately I didn't edit, I didn't, finish editing the episode so I could publish it for you guys to listen to. Um, it's kind of more of an evergreen episode. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, this episode I'm recording this week is actually going to be for this week. And that other one will be probably for next week. If there's nothing good on the news or economic cycle or whatnot that I don't really want to talk about today and this week, the reason I'm not going to post that week's episode to uh, this week is primarily because there's a couple of things that I've been reading, been reading a ton of articles, like I always do. I mean, I'm always reading articles, right? I, I enjoy it. it. It helps to, you know, keep me educated and keep me informed of what's going on. Sometimes I have to take a break because, frankly, it can be kind of depressing. But for the most part, I really enjoy doing it and everything. So, you know, with that, with that said, I, th- there's a couple of things on the on the horizon that, I th- that have happened that I think we need to talk about. And then there's also an interesting uh, conversation about decentralization and whatnot with regards to Bitcoin that also uh, I, I would like to talk about as well. But anyway, so I do apologize for not posting that episode last week or any episode for that matter. But once again, we're back to it and there will be an episode this week. Uh, this episode will be this <laughs> will be this week's one. And uh, yeah, we'll go from there. So also with that said, you know, I hope you guys had a great Father's Day weekend for those of you who are fathers and all that. And and yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Me and my family, we went out, we had a lot of lot of fun and uh, just a lot of festivities. Right. You know, my wife and I, we got to go out on a date for our for our anniversary. That was amazing because I don't know if you know this. If you don't have kids, maybe you're not 100 percent familiar with this. But for those of you who don't have kids, when you do, you lose a lot of freedom for a period of time right? When your kids are young, you just don't have the ability to go off and live life the way that you were able to before. So my wife and I, we went on the second date, okay? It was our second date without our daughter that we have had uh, probably within years. I can't say it was the first date because a little while ago, we were able to go out on one date, just the two of us, and that was great. It was on the day that we... um uh, we, we, we didn't, we, the, the actual sale of our house went through and everything. And we were actually over at my in-laws parents' house. We were signing the, well, actually the sale hadn't really gone through. We were signing the papers. Okay. And that one day we, because we were at my in-laws house, we were actually able to have them watch our daughter while we went out on a, a pretty early uh, dinner date, which was great. It had been the first date that we had been able to go out on literally since, I, I don't know, ye- uh, at least a year. So it was really, really cool that we got to do that. Well, this was the second one that we'd been able to do, you know, in a long time. And it was, it was really, really nice. We went to, out to a nice dinner and it was, it was great. We, we, my wife bought me a really nice, 
uh, Frederick Constant Watch. I'm not sure I'm even saying that that name right. For those of you guys who are watch connoisseurs like me, I, I, I'm a huge watch enthusiast. I wouldn't say that I, I'm going off and I wouldn't go off and say that I'm an expert at, in watches, but I do like to collect watches. I've got some Bolivas, I've got some Movado, I, I got a Movado, and now I got a Frederick Constant. I have an Invicta. And, and yeah, I just, I, I like watches. I love them. They're, so I, I collect them. <laughs> I have a 10 watch box and I, a 10 watch watch box and I haven't filled it up fully yet. And, uh, but I intend to, and I intend to uh, collect more than 10. But as of right now though, so she got me this really cool watch and uh, it, I actually had to go through the process of actually going and seeing whether or not the watch was legitimate. She got it at such a cheap price. So I had to go, I had to find an authorized dealer or Frederick Constance, and I finally did find one nearby, and I went to go look at it. They said it was legitimate, and I'm like, yes, awesome. So not only did I get an amazing Frederick Constant, but I got it at a massive, massive discount. I mean, the watch usually retails for like $1,000, okay? So that's not like a lot of money. It's, it's not like a hugely expensive watch. But then, you know, it she got it for like 200 bucks on Amazon. And so I naturally, I thought it was fake. So I went to go and I went to look at it and whatnot. And it turns out, no, it's completely legit. So I was like, sweet score. I mean, here's the thing. When you're buying really nice watches, okay, not all watches are going to appreciate in value. It depends on the brand. It depends depends on the model. There's a lot of things that 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 it, that hinge on the fact that whether or not it will appreciate in value. But um, watches depreciate like anything else. They produce a certain number of them, and as long as they're continuing to produce them more than there is demand for them, it will depreciate. And so, you know, it's one of those things, if it's a very rare edition, you know, not very many models were made, it's a very popular brand, then, you know, you might be able to get a nice, you know, a watch that actually appreciates in value. But there's a lot of variables that go into whether an item will increase in value and whether it won't. And now when we're talking about gold and silver and other assets, you know, that's pretty cut and dry, right? There's always been a demand for gold and silver. And usually once the gold and silver is produced, it doesn't typically, it doesn't always depreciate. Now granted, yeah, the spot price of silver has been depreciating for a long time, but it's been seeing some pretty, some pretty good rises. I think it's hovering around 25, close to $26 today. It's not bad. It, It really isn't. But due to the limited quantity of silver and gold that exist, in the end, you know, it has a lot, there's a lot of demand for it, and the product is relatively scarce. So that can shoot prices up and that can do, it can do a whole host of things. So, you know, but when we're talking about actual assets like vintage watches or really nice watches, vintage cars, art, okay? When we're talking about that kind of stuff, it's important to keep in mind that just because something is rare does not make it valuable. It has to be desirable, right? Again, value is entirely subjective right? So just because something is physical and rare and all that kind of stuff, you know, you've got some of the the right variables there, but if it's not desirable, it's not valuable. And this is a very good lesson because my wife and I, we were watching an Antiques Roadshow. Um, Yeah, we're kind of old like that. (laughs) But we were watching an Antiques Roadshow. It was an older episode. I don't remember how far back it was, probably early 2000, maybe 2011, 2010, maybe even earlier than that. I don't remember. But it was for the BBC. And there was this guy who had this particular antique piece. It was a really, really old piece, and it was incredibly rare. I don't even remember exactly what it was, okay? But it was very rare, very old, and yet it was only worth $1,000, And you're like, if you're like me, and you're like probably thinking, how can, Matthew, how can that be? It's rare, it's old, there is demand for it. Yes, yes there is, but it's, the demand is not as high as you would think it would be for that item. Not everyone's out there looking for a super, super rare piece. And this is important to note because a long time ago, I was actually, and, and even today, in point of fact, I'm, I'm interested in, in investing in diamonds. You know, it's not usually an asset that most people talk about investing. It would be very difficult to liquidate, so it would be difficult to find a buyer and to sell the diamonds. But 
you know, it's a cool, it's a cool concept, right? It's, it's another, you know, just another asset that you could more or less uh, invest in like gold and silver, but it's a bit, you know, off the beaten path. You know, there isn't this huge diamond investing market and there's not a lot of uh, retailers out there or not a lot of brokers out there who are facilitating buying and selling of diamonds. Now there are some who are doing this, but it's not like super widespread and, and whatnot. It's, it, but anyways, I think it's cool. I've always looked into the idea of doing it, but I've never really, you know, pulled the trigger. Well, you know, a long time ago, I remember when I was interested in this, that there were some people that were trying to sell these massive yellow twin diamonds and they were, they're super, super rare. And the value of them is very, very high. Okay. They're incredibly expensive. They're very rare. And a lot of people would think, well, Matthew, isn't that a really good investment if you have it? Well, I, I would say no. It's not because, because of how rare they are and how expensive they are, it drastically limits the number of people who would be interested in the item that makes it less liquid. Okay. It's not as easy to sell. Okay. I mean, it's, it's kind of like when you're buying land, if you're buying a, a, a thousand acres of land, as opposed to five acres of land, well, there's going to be probably a lot more buyers interested in the five acres than a thousand acres. Who really wants to pay, you know, property taxes and who really wants to buy a thousand acres of land? You would never, I mean, what would you use it for? Right? So there's a lot less people that are, that want to, you know, do buy an a thousand acre land than, than a five acre land property. Well, it's kind of the same thing with diamonds, right? There's a lot more people who want to buy tinier diamonds that are more commonly used in ring jewelry, okay? Diamonds are heavily used for ring jewels, or for, for jewelry. I said ring jewels. It's more heavily, they're heavily used in jewelry, right? Well, you would want to buy the diamonds that are the most commonly traded, the most commonly bought and purchased and sold, Right? That's what you want. You don't really want the diamond that's super, super rare because they're, and very valuable, very expensive because there's a lot less buyers for something like that. Now, I'm not trying to say that, you know, someone couldn't invest in an item like that, sit on it for a couple of years, sell it and make a profit. I'm just saying that it's going to be harder to find the seller. So for me, something that is easily, you know, sellable. You know, has a, it has a, is easy to liquidate is the most valuable thing in my most humble opinion. Well, when you get into like watches and you get into artwork and you get into a lot of stuff like that, it's important to keep that in mind. The item needs to be not overly prohibitively expensive. Okay. I mean, it can be expensive, but it, it needs to be of a decent value and has to have a, and more importantly than all of that, it has to have a massive, massive following of people who like it. So if you buy like a Rolex watch, okay, uh, Rolexes, Mariner watches, or stuff like that, those are very, very, very popular watches. In point of fact, they're so valuable, I wouldn't even really recommend somebody buying it and, and wearing it. You know, you buy it, you stick it in a safe. Buy an Invicta or some like other brand that basically makes a copy of it so you can get the same look but you're not really risking destroying something that's highly valuable. I mean, you could wear it if you wanted to. It's just so not typically advisable, right? But these watches, these Rolexes, they've got a lot of value attached to them because there's a lot of people who love Rolex, okay? Whether you agree with it or not, people like Rolexes. And if you buy, but not every Rolex is is equal, right? Not every Rolex is valuable. There are going to be some Rolexes that are valuable, but again, and some that are, well, they're probably valuable, but they're less valuable, right? They're less popular among collectors and whatnot, but you need a collector. You need an audience. You need someone who loves those, that brand, those, that, that particular model of watch, and you need someone who'd be willing to sell. So, you know, a Rolex, May not be a bad idea, but is it, is it better to invest in a Rolex, a couple thousand dollars, tens of thousands possibly, or to spend that money on uh, gold and silver, where literally there's shops all around me that'll buy the gold and silver. Now, my, probably for a, a low price, not retail, obviously, but they'll buy it, you know, or, you know, if you, uh, there's lots of brokers online where if you buy silver from them, you can sell silver from them as well, particularly if you bought it from them in the first place. These are the liquid, the, 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 I don't know what you would call it, the liquidability of silver or gold 
would probably be a little easier than trying to liquidate, you know, a Rolex watch, trying to find a buyer for the Rolex watch. It's, it's, it's more difficult. Now there are websites, right? There's, I think Chronomaster 24 or something like that. Maybe it's Chrono 24. I don't remember. There's a, there are websites where you can post watches that you want to sell. It's kind of like an eBay. You can post your watches on eBay. You could do it on Amazon, stuff of that nature. But again, it's not as, it's not as easy as other stuff. So when you're thinking about investing, keep that in mind. How easy is it going to be for you to get rid of the item that you have invested in? Because it's very, very important. Now, we have already spent a big chunk of the show talking about something I never intended to talk about, which happens all the time. Okay. I get on these rants and stuff. And I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming you like it if you come here every week, if you're just joining me here. Yeah, it happens a lot, you know, uh, but you know, you get a lot of really, really great insights as to how I v- view stuff. And frankly, I think my insights are pretty valuable for the most part. I mean, I don't think it's completely pointless and worthless information. So I think you learn a lot of good stuff too. So anyways, with that said, Let's get into the topic I actually wanted to originally talk about at the start of this. Uh, but anyways, yeah, uh, j- just to reiterate, yes, my wife bought me a, lo- a nice watch. It's probably not going to be something that's hugely valuable and very collectible, but I like it. It looks nice, and it's the nicest watch from a pretty cool brand, a very luxurious brand for that matter. Uh, not the the most expensive, but, you know, a very, very nice nonetheless. It's a very nice watch and probably the nicest one that I've had since. So... But let's talk about what we were going to talk about. So we're going to be reading two articles from the American Institute for Economic Research. One of them is by Thomas L. Hogan, and the other is by William J. Luther. Okay, the first one is talking about the interest rates, okay? The interest rates on reserve, the I, I think it's IOR is, is, is the actual terminology, and how the Fed effectively raised the interest rates that it is paying to banks for the reserves that the banks have and how this is ultimately going to cause banks to hoard cash more so than what they were doing before because they're going to get a, a better interest rate now on the cash that they're that they're basically they have in their reserves so this is one way that the fed is going is trying to control inflation Right. They're trying to get banks to take money out of the economy and to hold it in reserves. And that would be one way to control the, all this money printing and the subsequent, you know, devaluation of the currency. And, you know, that causes prices to rise and whatnot. So again, again, inflation is the increase in the monetary supply, not a, a rise in prices. But just because you increase the monetary supply does not always mean that prices are going to rise. It depends on what you do with the money, depends on where the money goes, okay? It's not as clear-cut and in, in as simplistic as many, many, many people will try to make it sound to you. But with that said, let's go ahead and hop into this article. Did the Fed just raise interest rates? And by the way, this article was posted on June 20th, so three days ago. The Federal Open Market Committee, FOMC, met this week to decide the stance of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy. In its official statement, the committee chose to maintain its effective federal funds rate target in the range of 0 to 0.25% and ongoing open market purchase of $120 million per month. The Fed did, however, have an important change listed in its implementation note. It raised the interest rates that the Fed pays to banks and other financial institutions. How should consumers investors interpret this change in Fed policy? The Fed's monetary policy tools. Up to 2008, the Fed conducted monetary policy through open market operations, the buying and selling of short-term treasury bonds. In 2008, it expanded these purchases to include mortgage-backed securities, MBSs. Rather than only buying or selling when rates needed to be adjusted, the Fed is currently conducting ongoing purchases of $80 billion in treasuries and $40 billion in MBSs per month. In addition, the Fed switched from a corridor system of monetary policy to a floor system. It introduced a new rate of interest on reserves, IOR, that it pays to U.S. banks, which became the key tool of monetary policy. Unfortunately, the rate of IOR was not as effective as the Fed had expected in establishing a floor for short-term interest rates. The Fed was forced to create another tool, a facility for overnight reverse repurchases, ONRRP, transactions, the rate for which became the subfloor for short-term interest rates. Man, ONRRP, overnight reverse repurchase, 
I'm good, good night, Emer. That, 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 that is quite the mouthful for an acronym. But anyways, okay, continuing on. At the end of 2008, the Fed also switched from targeting a single interest rate to a Fed funds target range. The rate of IOER was previously set equal to the top of the target range and the ONRRP rate at the bottom end. But that is no longer the case. Since 2018, these rates have been set somewhere within the Fed funds target range. The Fed also set the discount rate at a ceiling for bank borrowing, making a total of six tools for monetary policy, five different administrated rates in addition to its open market operations. The Fed's new policy. Fed officials now plan to keep interest rates at their current lows through at least 2022 and not raise their targets until sometime in 2023, although recent signs of inflation have caused some to indicate that changes may come sooner. In addition, Fed officials expect their asset purchases to continue for some time. At his recent press conference, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that despite signs of potential inflation, the FOMC would give advance notice before announcing any decision on planning on planned changes in asset purchases. Why is the Fed so hesitant to trim asset purchases? Fed officials fear a negative financial market response, such as the so-called taper tantrum of 2013. Then Chair Ben Bernanke's announcement that the Fed would taper down its open market purchases led to a huge sell-off in the bond market, which pushed up interest rates, something the Fed did not want. To preempt such a response, Powell has stressed that any reduction in asset purchases would be announced well in advance in order to set expectations and minimize financial market disruptions. Fed officials have backed themselves into a corner here. Their pre-announced interest rate and asset purchase plans for the coming years were intended to set market expectations. It may have worked too well. Now they are afraid to change those plans so as not to disrupt expectations. Ironically, these expectations ignore the Fed's more important policy tools. In a floor system, open market purchases added reserves to the banking system, but that money never gets to the economy if the rate of IOR is sufficiently high. Similarly, the target range for the Fed funds rate is important for setting expectations, but unlike the rates of IOR and ONRRPs, it has little effect on the incentive for banks or financial institutions. In the Fed's current floor system, the rate of IOR is the key tool of monetary policy. If the Fed raised the rate of IOR, then it raised interest rates. What does this mean for the economy? The proliferation of monetary policy tools has made Fed policy difficult to evaluate, much less predict. The FOMC statement says, nothing to see here, but its actions whisper rates should be higher. Expectations aside, raising the rate of IOR is a, has a bigger monetary policy effect than a change in the target range announced by the FOMC. The complexity of these monetary policies is confusing and counterproductive. The Fed is effectively putting money into the economy with one hand through open market purchases, but with the other hand, it is taking money out by paying banks and financial institutions to deposit those funds back to the Fed. Raising the rate of IOR can help limit inflation, but combined with open market purchases, it will build up banks' excess reserve holdings, distort their investment incentives, and heighten the Fed's political profile. With little fanfare, the Fed quietly raised the rate of IOR. This contractionary policy will slow the rate of money growth in the economy, but paying higher interest rates on bank reserves while adding more money to the economy will increase banks' hoardings of cash reserves and misallocate credit in the financial system. All right, well, that is the end of the article. And again, it was written by Thomas L. Hogan, a PhD, who is a senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He also was the formerly, formerly the chief economist for the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. So that said, you know, so basically what he's saying is the interest rate on reserves is an interest rate that the Federal Reserve pays banks and other financial institutions for the money that they hold with the Fed. Okay, so they basically give money to the Fed. They're taking money out of circulation. They give it to the Federal Reserve, and then the Federal Reserve is paying interest rates on it. Every time the Federal Reserve does this type of stuff, you know, it, it always has market manipulation. It's always market manipulation, of course, but it, it distorts the economy, kind of like what this article says, what, what Thomas L. Hogan says in this article. It distorts the market. If you're printing money and you're injecting in the, into it into the economy, and then at the same time, you're encouraging banks to take money out of the economy and give it to the Federal Reserve and then the, the, so that the Federal Reserve will pay them money for their reserves, again, you're, you're, you're putting money into the market with one hand and taking money out and then with the other. 
It's a completely pointless thing. I mean, sure, taking money out of the economy with the interest rates on reserves, okay, is like Thomas L. Hogan says. It's going to take – it could – if done properly, it will take money out of circulation. All right. It will put it in savings and, uh, you know, in reserves for the banks and financial institutions at the Federal Reserve, which is, you know, inherently, I, you know, it's just, it's just all the just market manipulation. That's all it is. But effectively, the Fed f- has a way of manipulating the interest rates, of manipulating the money supply in secretive ways that you and I are not aware of. And that ultimately, okay, ultimately, they have ways of doing this, you know, in a way that nobody is going to be aware of because nobody knows that it even happened. Now, on the one hand, as the article states, you know, hope, you know, because it was secretive, basically, hopefully it will have the effect of reducing monetary devaluation, right? Which is the process of prices rising. Okay. Most people would refer to it as price inflation. I don't because prices do not inflate. They can go up and down, but they don't expand and contract. Okay. The expanding and contracting is really more in reference to a supply of something, at least in my mind. Anyways, I don't use that terminology because I don't want to associate inflation with prices rising because I, I feel like that does a huge disservice to people that do. It, because if you don't understand what inflation really is, which all it is, is the increase in the monetary supply that exists in an economy, that's circulated in an economy. If you don't understand that, then it's very difficult to point to what causes inflation. Many people, if you ask them today, what causes inflation? They wouldn't be able to tell you money printing from the Fed because that's what inflation is, right? They wouldn't be able to tell you that. They would say, well, it could be shortages or supply chain disruptions or businesses being greedy and raising their prices, or perhaps it has something to do with, you know, uh, gosh, I don't know, price gouging, you know, a limitation, a very, very short term limitation on, you know, the supply chain because of some natural disaster, yada, 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 yada. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that in the end, if you don't understand what inflation really is, it's only caused by one thing, only one thing, okay? The creation of more money. And the only people that have the authority to do that today, because all we have is paper money today, it's not backed by anything, nothing substantial, no no gold or silver. The only people who have the ability to do that today is the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. Technically, the Treasury is the one who has the official authority in printing money, But the Federal Reserve creates money out of thin air without really printing it, right? And I'm not going to go into the process. It's actually quite lengthy and a bit complicated. We already just read a complicated article, but you get the idea. The Fed increases the money supply all the time, even though they don't have the legal authority to actually create and print money. They still do it. But that's what inflation is, and it's incredibly important to know that. So now that the Fed has secretly raised interest rates, at least with regards to the interest on reserves, the effect is that it's going to cause banks to hoard cash. This may cause prices in the economy to uh, slow down a bit, maybe even the point to the point of possibly causing it to stop altogether, although I kind of doubt it. Again, they're still printing money. They're still injecting it into the economy. They're just trying to slow the process down, not stop it entirely with the IOR, the interest rate, the interest on reserves that the Fed pays to these banks and financial institutions. But anyways, I just thought that was very interesting to keep in mind. You know, I I thought it was a fascinating article. I didn't really know. I mean, I knew that they, that the Fed pays the banks and reserves and stuff. I didn't realize they actually raised the rate. Now, am I someone who watches this information all the flipping time? No, no, I have a life. (laughs) Got to take care of my daughter. Got to produce you know, podcast episodes, got to, you know, do back testing and a whole host of other things, right? But, you know, it is it is nice to have a publication that does monitor this stuff, like the American Institute for Economic Research. And it is nice to, because I, I didn't see that information at anywhere at the Mises Institute or even at the Foundation for Economic Education. I only saw it at the American Institute for Economic Research, which I, which is actually where, uh, if you guys are huge ANCAP fans, uh, Jeffrey Tucker, 
works at the American Institute for Economic Research. I think he's like a, a head editor or something of that nature. So, which is the only reason that I figured out what this, you know, this institute, that, that was how I figured it out was Jeffrey Tucker went there. And I like some of Jeffrey Tucker's ideas and stuff. He seems like he's a great guy. So, I read some of this, I read a lot of the stuff that he does. But anyway, so I just thought you guys should be aware of that. All right, so we're getting to the halfway point of the episode. Let's go ahead and hop into this decentralization article that William J. Luther posted. So he wrote this and posted it on June 21st, 2021 at the American Institute for Economic Research. And the title is The Decentralization Fetish. So let's go ahead and hop into that. There is a common view among Bitcoin advocates, which also prevails to some extent among economists working in the Austrian tradition, that decentralization is always good and more decentralized solutions are always better. In both forms, this view starts with a reasonable premise. Bitcoin revolutionized payments by enabling digital transactions to take place between strangers without a trusted third party serving as a centralized clearinghouse. Lode von Mises argued that economic calculation was impossible under central planning, while Frederick Hayek explained that markets relied on decentralized knowledge of a particular time and place. It does not follow in either case, however, that decentralization is always good and more decentralized solutions are always better. I call that view the decentralization fetish. We should reject the decentralization fetish and instead think carefully about the optimal degree of decentralization and centralization, which might vary across applications. Let's start with Hayek. He seems to have been more concerned with decentralization as a property of the institutional environment rather than a description of the outcomes. Consider the meaning of competition. Competition in Hayek's view is not marked by a large number of, of atomistic firms, what economists might call price takers. Competition is about rivalry. Perhaps there are only two firms. Perhaps there is only one firm and the threat of entry from a second firm. It is tempting to look at such situations and conclude that they are pretty centralized. But the institutional environment can be decentralized even if relatively centralized outcomes result. We can say much the same about Bitcoin and other blockchain applications. It's great to have the option of decentralization, but it doesn't follow that this option should be exercised in every state of the world. Sometimes, more centralized outcomes are preferable and as such might persist in otherwise decentralized institutional environments. Before thinking about Bitcoin, consider the extent to which monies are essential or useful for making transactions. In general, in a provocatively titled article, Nobuhiro Kiyotaki and John Moore maintain that evil is the root of all money. The basic idea is that we don't need money if we can trust each other enough to engage in reciprocal gift exchange, i.e. producing for others when others desire our production. Money, or some record-keeping device, is useful because it enables exchange to take place when trust is hard to come by. That money is useful is beyond dispute. We would not have highly specialized economies and correspondingly the high standards of living we enjoy today without money. It does not follow, however, that money is always useful. Monies are useful in situations where trust is limited, but sometimes it's better to trust than to use money. Long-term intimate relationships serve to illustrate this. At its core, a long-term intimate relationship is a bundle of mutual exchanges carried out over a long period of time. We don't typically use money in those transactions. My wife doesn't charge me for dinner. She doesn't pay me when I mow the lawn. We rely on trust and reciprocity, which enables gift exchange because it is more convenient than, than using money in ongoing high-trust relationships. Does this deny that money is useful? Of course not! We can recognize that money is useful without concluding that it is sufficiently useful in all situations to warrant use in all situations. Sometimes we use money. Sometimes we rely on other institutional mechanisms to make transactions. The decentralization fetish is especially common among those interested in Bitcoin. Many Bitcoin proponents rightfully recognize that it makes centralized clearinghouses, like banks, unnecessary for processing transactions. They then jump from unnecessary to undesirable. Some go so far as to claim that Bitcoin is good because banks are bad. That Bitcoin makes it unnecessary to rely on centralized clearinghouses. Like banks does not mean banks are undesirable. Banks require trust to process payments between their customers, and that trust might be broken. But banks also engage in financial intermediation, channeling savings into valuable investment projects. Historically, banks have used their payment processing facilities to acquire funds for intermediation. If we look around the world, places with deeper financial systems, i.e. where there is more financial intermediation, tend to have higher incomes and grow more rapidly. It is good to be able to make payments without needing to trust a third party. It is also good to engage in financial 
in financial intermediation. The relevant question isn't whether we should use Bitcoin or banks, but when to use Bitcoin and when to use banks. It is not, in other words, an all or nothing proposition. For some transactions, the cost of foregone financial intermediation will be worth bearing in order to realize the benefits of finality and financial privacy made possible by Bitcoin. For other transactions, the benefits of Bitcoin will not warrant the requisite costs. One might push back by noting that the decentralized finance, DeFi, we can use the blockchain technology to engage in financial, financial intermediation without trusting a bank or other third party as well. And that's true. But once again, can does not imply should. It is very difficult to identify all of the potential problems that might arise over the course of a contract and, and specify precisely how the parties to the contract might behave in each scenario. The cost of writing a contract increases with the degree of specificity. In some cases, the benefits of smart contracts are just too small to warrant the cost. We'd be better served by writing a traditional contract and delegating a third party to resolve any disputes that arise. Might the trusted third-party adjudicator violate our trust? Sure, but for some transactions, we might prefer to bear that risk rather than incur the costs of DeFi. It is good to have decentralized options, but we must not merely assume that decentralization is always good and more decentralized solutions are always better. Instead, we should recognize that it depends on the unique benefits of decentralization and the costs of realizing those benefits relative to more centralized alternatives. We should reject the decentralization fetish in favor of clearing explanations that recognize the relevant trade-offs. And that's the end of the article. This article, um, these remarks were originally prepared for the Cryptocurrency and Hyatt Conference, hosted jointly by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University and Coin Center. And it was written by J William J. Luther, who is the director of the American Institute for Economic Research's Sound Money Project and an associate professor of economics at Florida Atlantic University. <laughs> university anyways i don't know why i said it that way but okay so this was a really great article it made a lot of good points right i mean i don't know if you guys uh you know got all that again i'll put the links in the description below so that you guys can go and read it uh i may have read it too quickly uh or whatnot or maybe i whatever maybe maybe you just need to read it yourself that's perfectly fine i very much am the same way i like to hear articles and stuff being read sometimes but at the same time you know if I have the time, I like to go and read it for myself. It just helps to better understand what was being said, you know, to do it both ways. So, but here's the thing that that, that this that I liked about this article, okay? Uh, I've been doing a lot of research into cryptocurrencies because I've been very, recently, I've been very interested in becoming a crypto miner, okay? I, I've been looking into potentially buying a Bitcoin mining machine, maybe a Zcash mining machine or whatnot. They're expensive machines, thousands of dollars, anywhere from five to six grand and up, actually. They're very, very expensive, but they have the potential for producing a fair amount of money, right? At least, and, and it kind of all depends on the price of Bitcoin. It kind of all depends on a lot of different things. And there's a lot of risks associated with these machines so th that I'm currently trying to research to determine whether or not I actually want to do it or not. You know, I mean, I could simply put that money to work in a trading account and trade with it and probably produce a higher return for myself, um, or at least theoretically. I, I haven't finished the, the strategy yet, but so far it looks like I might be able to produce a higher return for myself trading than I would with, with actual, you know, Bitcoin, you know, crypto mining, but crypto mining occurs while I'm sleeping and I can't trade while I'm sleeping, right? And I don't have a automated program trading for me, at least not yet. Once I, I find that strategy that I like, once the testing phase is over, and I'll actually start trading it live. Once I start trading it live and I've been doing it for a little while and it's it's looking good, then I will go ahead and automate the strategy by by coding an automation software, creating software to that trades, you know, 24/7 for me. And that is that is the general idea here. But again, I'm not there yet. Whereas mining, it does produce some money, right? It can produce money in the form of the cryptocurrencies in question. And as long as cryptocurrencies are going up, it's not a bad proposition. But anyways, the point is, is that I started researching a lot of this stuff. And yeah, there is this constant obsession in everything that I'm reading about cryptocurrencies from Bitcoin to Ethereum, what have you. There's this constant obsession with decentralization. And you guys know, okay, I'm a monarchist. So clearly, I believe that centralization is good in some cases. 
which this article was basically saying. Now, it wasn't saying that with regards to a political system. It was saying that with regards to finances and, you know, trading and things of that nature, right? And not like trading with regards to Forex, but trading with goods and services. But at the same time, it has parallels. Is decentralization always good? Well, I don't think so. It's not always good in every situation. Is centralization always good? No, not in every situation. Many of you may disagree with my stance on monarchy. Now, the ideal system, in my opinion, would be a highly decentralized form of monarchy, okay? You'd have, you'd have cities and towns that would be highly centralized with the king or queen, but then they only control a very small territory. They only control small plots of uh, a city or a town or something like that. And the fact that, that this is the way that it is holds itself in an equilibrium of, of power where, you know, kings and queens are not going to war constantly to fight each other, which actually it, it would happen more than it might happen. I don't know. In today's modern day, I, I don't know. That might actually occur. I mean, I know historically it did because at one point that was how everything was. It was a highly decentralized form of monarchy where kings and queens owned large swaths of land, but not entire countries. Okay. And they would war with each other to gain more land. And then, you know, one king would beat another king or a queen would beat the other king or what, what have you. And they would centralize power over larger areas of land than what was uh, previously there. And so if you had a more modern 21st century version where the entire United States was basically broken up into all these small towns and, and cities of kings and queens, then I don't know how it would honestly work. I, I think it could work well. I do think that centralization would still happen because human nature the law of humanity, it's a law of humanity that, at least in my eyes, that humans always edge toward, they always move towards centralization of power. It's just, it's just something that we all want to do, it seems. It's like we all want to centralize power because in the end, we as human beings are control freaks. Even if you don't think you are, there are certain aspects of your life that I assure you, you want control over. And you would rather centralize the authority under your control more so so that you can have more control over because it, it makes you feel better that way, right? Every human being does this in their own life in different ways and applied to different circumstances and situations, of course. But we all desire to have some centralization of power because we have the desire for control. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Okay, I think, you know, God created us with that so that we would take control of the earth, use it, manage it, take control of our circumstances, and use it to ultimately, you know, benefit ourselves and our relationship with God and things of that nature. I don't think it was, it's a, it's inherently a bad thing. Kind of depends on what it's being used for and what, and, and what you're doing though, right? But anyways, with that stated, with regards to this thing, you know, I've even heard of, let's go back to like cryptocurrencies, like Ethereum. I've even heard of a situation, and if, if you're familiar with, with cryptocurrency, you may already know this. I was unaware of this. But apparently, cryptocurrency, Ethereum is founded on a blockchain and uses what's called smart contracts, where in order for money to be transferred, certain criteria specified in the contract have to be met before money is dispersed. Before the before you guys engage in commerce and other things. Well, the idea here is that this could be used not merely for for currencies, but this could also be used for a whole host of other things, such as social media and you know all, all kinds of stuff. Well, somebody, uh, actually a group of people, tried to do it with regards to a business, an automated smart contract business where the business was controlled by a computer software by a smart contract and it, and they say and you can obviously tell i think this was done by left-wing people it's like well there's no hierarchies nobody owns the company and that it's all managed by contracts well as you can imagine i don't agree with that whatsoever i think it's doomed to failure and indeed it did fail very quickly but not for the reasons not for the reasons that you think it failed because the whole the software got hacked and all the money 
that the software had basically got uh, drained out of the system. It was like millions upon millions of dollars. It was a lot of money. A very, very exp- expensive failure. But it was it, it didn't fail because it was implemented and turned out it didn't work, which I think long-term, that is what would happen. I think long-term, if you're having a decentralized business where you don't have a hierarchy, you don't have groups of people telling the company what to do. I think that the company did have investors. They had stakeholders who had money in the company and they drove the decisions of the company instead of some CEO or whatnot. So they took out the middleman, right? And I find that to be very fascinating. I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe it can work. I don't know. I'm sure, surely I am interested to see how it all works out. I'm interested to see someone try it, but I I have my doubts. I have my doubts. I don't think it would work. I think that it would be better for there to be an owner, not a CEO, not a manager who doesn't really own the company and just manages the company. No, no, I don't like that. I like the idea that there is an owner. They put up their capital. They invested with it. They're the ones that have skin in the game, and they're the ones that ultimately are going to try to control the business and run it and grow it but they're not in but if if you when you have these managers that have no family ties and sometimes even if you have family ties it just isn't it just doesn't work doesn't work well right they didn't create the business there are some family members who feel very 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 highly obligated to keep up with the business out of a sense of uh in you know in memory of their father or their family who created the business and it's 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 a notion of family honor to keep it going. This is the, the very the very thing that ended and motivation that drove a lot of nobles back in the day of kings and queens to maintain their nobility and their wealth. It wasn't necessarily they they directly owned the estates. They directly owned everything. And uh, frankly, it was really more of keeping up with it. Even if you had an individual who didn't care about it, it was really more keeping up with it for the sake of the family honor, right? It was seen as, yes, while it is their estate, they need to ensure that it survives for future generations because it has already survived for future generations. But when it comes to a lot of Americans and when it comes to people today, if you gave your kid, kids oftentimes take over businesses and drive them into the ground. They didn't, they didn't have, a lot of that's probably because they didn't see their family build it. They probably had very little involvement in the company itself and they had very little invested in the company. So when they get it, they don't really appreciate it because they didn't really see it be built. They weren't really a part of that process and it wasn't hard ingrained in them enough to care about that process. So they, they just didn't really care. But again, that's what I think would be better, the better system. You have someone who owns an owner-based you know, uh, business. It would, is, is far better than a man, someone who manages it like a CEO or something of that nature. But with that said, though, this idea of decentralization, this idea of automated software contracts, smart contracts and stuff, managing a business, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's doomed to failure. And I think it's part of this whole decentralization fetish. Because in the end, it's not just going to stop at a business. If, if the business seems to be successful with, with it being decentralized, if they deem it a success, even if outside, view, outside viewers say that it's not a success and that they're crazy, even if it's deemed successful, then they're, then they're going to try to extrapolate and apply it to a very, very large, on a large scale. They're going to apply it to a country. And you can, and there are people who already feel this way, that democracy was the first attempt and it didn't work. So we need more decentralization. We need a, a, a country that's run by software. Maybe it's run by, you know, but, but I guess even in the, that case, even in the company situation for what they were talking about, I think there were investors, stakeholders, but you know, stakeholders, that's an interesting topic, isn't it? Who is really a stakeholder? Some people might say that a vendor that a company works with is a stakeholder because the vendor's future is tied to the company's success. But is the vendor a stakeholder? I wouldn't say they are. They're not a stakeholder at all, in my mind. 
No, they're, they're merely a party who benefits off the success of the business, but they are not a stakeholder. They have other co- clients, and if they don't, well, that's their problem. Okay? You don't operate your business to try to help out the vendors. No, no, no. If you're a company and they're trying to vie for, you know, bid for your your business because you're so, so huge that your jobs are very, very valuable to them and you got all these vendors who are trying to bid for your business, that doesn't make them a, vent, a stakeholder in your business. No, it doesn't. See, there's, a you know, an investor, someone who's actually put up money into a business, sure, they have an actual stake in the business. They have skin in the game. A vendor who hasn't put up any money, who merely does business with you, has no has very little skin in the game. You could say that, well, they make money off of us, sure, but if you die, they'll just move on to the next one. They don't have skin in the game. Not like an investor who's taken millions of his dollars to invest in the shares of your company. You know? Employees. Are employees stakeholders? Uh, no. They have no... They have not taken the risks to create the company. They have not put up their own capital to, you know, create the company. They have not spent the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into making a brand and a company. They have a job. A job that they don't own. It's owned by the business, and the business is just allowing them to sit in the job and, and, and you ultimately do the job. It's not their job. They're not entitled to it. They have no stake in the business. Now, one might say, well, what if we gave them stocks? What if we gave them shares in the company? Okay, but you gave those shares to them. They didn't invest their own hard money that they worked for blood, sweat, and tears to get. They didn't invest their own money. You gave them the money. That's not the same thing. You, you can't force employees to take a certain percentage of, their, of, their, of the wealth that they do possess and put it in your company if they want to work for you. You can't force them. That would be discrimination. But that would be better because it's their own money. Now, there is a bit of some skin in the game at that point. Right? You might be able to convince them to willingly do it. I mean, like Amazon. There are probably many, many Amazon employees who not only were are given stocks in Amazon, which is a considerable amount of money, considering the, the stock price of Amazon, depending on how many shares you're given. However, comma, okay, however, if the company... You know, those employees may have taken money because they love the company so much and invested it on their own as well. So they might have some money, but do you think it's a lot of money? Do you think they've dumped billions of dollars? No, probably not. More than likely, the employees, particularly the ones in the warehouse, don't have millions of dollars, hence the reason they work in a warehouse. And I I mean, no insult. Hey, I used to work in a warehouse. I know, but I don't have millions of dollars, and I didn't then. I have more money than I do now, and I don't work in the warehouse anymore. With regards to the executives, well, yeah, sure, they can get, you know, they can certainly get bonuses for their time at the company, and they can and for growing the company, and they can get shares in the company, and that does give them some skin in the game, right? It does. But that, those shares were not purchased with the executives' own money. They were given to you. The company exchanged its dollars for shares in the company and then gave them as a bonus, as a gift to the executive. It's not really his money. It's just bonus, just gravy money, right? So while there is, so I would say, no, there was not much skin in in the game there. Once again, it just, they're not a stakeholder. A stakeholder are the investors who take from their own wallets, their own bank accounts, and put that money into the company, and very large sums of it, okay? Not the executive, not the employee, not the vendor. They didn't invest blood, sweat, and tears to build that company. They didn't invest blood, sweat, and tears to build that brand. And a lot of times today, there's a lot of corporations that are in in existence that the true owners are gone. And now everyone who works at the company, none of them were involved in the process of building it. They're just there for a job. Even the executives, they're just there to build a name for themselves, to advance themselves. You know, a lot of times 
these companies that are built and have survived as long as they have, they they're they have family members who do have a, a, a they they do actually have ownership of the business. Sometimes they maintain full ownership, sometimes they don't. But even but even then they they don't have as much involvement as the original creator of the brand and the business. They just don't. But the family members are stakeholders, right? They have large portions of ownership of those companies in many cases. Their livelihoods depend on the company performing well. How many stories, how, how often does it happen where the managers of the business end up driving it into the ground and the family members have to come back in and fix things? That does happen. Okay? It does happen. But in the end, a manager is never going to be as good as an, the actual owner. And it's very difficult today. And today, I don't find it that difficult, but people don't know how to determine who is a stakeholder and who isn't. This is why stakeholder economics doesn't work because they start to apply stakeholder status to a bunch of people who aren't stakeholders. And they don't apply stakeholder and, and, and they don't overemphasize the importance of the actual stakeholders own ownership of and, and the skin in the game that they've invested into that company. Before you know it, they start applying ownership and stakeholder status to people that they're not stakeholders at all. So again, this idea behind now, with that said, let's go back to the whole Ethereum, uh, the whole D, the smart contract automated com company thing, right? Part of this whole decentralization fetish. Let's go ahead and let's go to back to that idea. Those, uh, the investors are the ones who drive the company. And they have invested their own money. As long as it's their own money and it's a large amount of money, right? Large enough for the, to where they care about it. Then that might actually work. It might. But I have my doubts. I really do. It might work for a time. But a company that's managed by a software, who determines what the software is coded to say? Who determines that? The investors? The original investors of the company? Look, the, it, there's another issue. That is a static software. Does it ever get changed? Does it ever update it? Are the investors going to vote to change the coding to continue to manage the company? I don't know, maybe. But to say that there's no hierarchy or there's a reduced in the reduction to hierarchy is absurd. If that is the case, somebody's coding that contract. Somebody is controlling the direction of the company, there's always going to be a hierarchy, ladies and gentlemen. And the idea that people want to get rid of it is absurd. It's a law of humanity. There will always be a ruling class. And if the investors are the ones determining the direction of the code that's going to manage this company, then they're now the ruling class. It's an, it's an oligarchy at that point. And the investors might change it. If this code is static, then it's not going to do very well because the world of, of business and industry is constantly changing and evolving. You can't, ha you need something dynamic, something that moves, not something that just stays still and never changes. So if the investors come together, that's going to force investors to come together and to change the overall smart contract of the company. Okay. Assuming that I'm understanding all this correctly. And hey, I mean, I've only been researching in the past couple of days. I can't say that I'm a huge expert on the situation, but I know economics. I know enough to be dangerous. I'm largely self-taught in that, but I know economics really well. I'm certainly more of an expert in economics than a, the, the bulk of people that are alive on this planet. I know what I'm saying. I, I feel like I always have had a, good, a, a decent pulse on human behavior, on how people act, you know, praxeology, human action, right? I feel like I've always had a, 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 a good pulse on it. I'm not always right, not perfect, not, a, you know, in that sense, but... Look, I, I don't see it working. Now, maybe I just can't see it. That might be the case. I'm willing to let, I, I, I think people should try it. See how it works out. Come back with the results. But a lot of these people, but here's the problem with it. If they are so adamantly true, you know, really deeply true believers in the whole process of decentralization, and to the point where it becomes a religion to them, much like socialism and communism are religions to their people, right? They're deep believers. 
if that's what happens, then it doesn't matter how many times it fails. They will always come up with a reason. Well, it failed because of X, Y, and Z. Well, it didn't work, not because of, of the, the idea. The idea was fine. On paper, it's a utopian society. It's a utopian business, utopian political system. But in the end, you know, it's never, it's never the system's fault. It's never the ideology that's the problem. It's never the belief. It's never the religion that's the problem. Because that's their worldview. Their identity is tied up in that religion. And it's a more of a secular religion because it doesn't involve, uh, you know, a deity, right? But again, their, their identity is tied up in it. To deny that that religion is real is to throw away their worldview and identity altogether. And if you have no identity, ladies and gentlemen, this is not a good place to be. It's very depressing, right? It doesn't usually lead to good places unless you find a better identity, and sometimes that does happen. A lot of times it doesn't, though. So that's why so many people are so adamant about holding to their religious beliefs in these things because they tie if they're if you have a religious belief your identity is tied up i'm a christian my identity is tied up in christ and the idea of being a christian right i have my identity in austrian economics all kinds of stuff it's my worldview but christianity's at the you know at the core am i a perfect christian am i a saint no not sorry just not i don't ever claim to be i've got my faults i've got my vices i struggle with on a daily basis but it's my worldview. It's my identity. It's, it's, it's what I believe in. To deny that would send me into a depression because I don't know why, why I'm living my life then. And I'd got to find another stuff. And I, I have questioned my faith in, in the past, of course. Everybody does. Some moments I didn't know why I believed it, but I, I couldn't fathom the idea of not believing it. So I just chose to believe it anyways, even though I didn't see evidence to say that it was real but i couldn't fathom the idea of not actually believing it it scared me so i believed it anyways over time i found evidence for myself that encouraged and reinforced my belief over time i did but ladies and gentlemen that was not it wasn't a, an overnight thing and now I, I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt that I, what my belief is. I, I'm fully, I'm all in, you know, just like I was before I started questioning it. I questioned, I came out on the other end, a stronger believer. Doesn't happen to everyone. Most of the time they question and they come out on the other end, not a strong believer because they weren't really founded in it to begin with. They weren't really in on it to begin with, Right. Maybe they hadn't tied their identity into it enough. I, I don't know. But ladies and gentlemen, look, I mean, g getting back to this whole thing, I think it's a great idea to try, but I do think that the author of this article makes a good point. Decentralization is not always viable in every situation. Now, we primarily have talked about it with regards to the structure of a corporation and, and uh, politics, maybe a, a, a political structure system, right? But just like he says, sometimes money is not always necessary. Sometimes it is. Sometimes centralization is necessary. And then sometimes it's not. And decentralization is better. But you see, that's the beautiful world that we live in. We need a society that understands that. And we need a society that ultimately is okay with having both options. Give people the ability to choose. Give them the choice. See, at the, at the core of it all, the idea of choice is a centralized process. We control our, our choices. No one else controls your choices but you. There are outside influences that try to get you to, you know, behave in a certain way. But in the end, you are the one that makes the choice. You are the arbiter of your will, right? Of what you want in your life. That's a centralized process. And to, you can't decentralize that. You just can't. So no, decentralization is not always good in every situation. And to try to apply it to everything, I don't think it's wrong to look at all everything, every aspect of life. Say, okay, what can we decentralize, and what can't we? And maybe we experiment with something, some things, with regards to decentralization. Now there will be there will be many things that I'm very much against. You want to decentralize parenting 
and of a family and who controls the family. I, no, I'm definitely not against. I'm not definitely not for that. That would be horrible, and I don't even know how you would do that. You know, I'm a firm believer in tragedy of the commons. If nobody owns it, it's just going to be abused, right? In most cases. I, I, I'm not saying that happens in every single case where nobody owns it. If there's enough people that have skin in the game, they're going to try to manage it. But again, then that would imply ownership, right? That would imply ownership. And um, that would, in, you know, in my mind, that would not be an accurate argument against that the, the tragedy of the commons. But again, the the point is, is that decentralization may work in some areas and it may not work in others. And I think it's perfectly fine to go off and experiment with some of that stuff and see where is decentralization better and where centralized, more centralized options better. But to assume one or the other that centralization is always better and decentralization is always better is not always the case. It's not always a good way of thinking about it. So, anyways, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to be it for the episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to like and subscribe wherever you are. Make sure to share the show if you're on social media. Hit that share button. And uh, if you like the show, you're coming here every week. You're getting a lot of value out of it. Do me two things. First and foremost, go leave me a rating review on iTunes. It helps to get the show visible. And if you like these ideas, you want to help me to spread these ideas of financial freedom, you know, living the liberty lifestyle, becoming financially free, all of that kind of stuff. If you want to help promote the liberty lifestyle, okay, then please go and, and re leave a rating review on iTunes. The second thing that you can do is to share the show. All right. Odds are, if you enjoy the show and you're coming here every week, you're getting a lot of value out of it. You're not the only one in your life who's going to enjoy it. So I ask you to do a couple things. Share it on social media. Okay. You just hit the share button. It doesn't take you very long to do that. All right. The other thing is to make sure, is to sh make sure and share it with three friends. One, you know, absolutely needs to hear it, but they may, you don't know if they're really going to like in want to hear it, but you know, they need to. Share it with that person and then share it with two other people you know are going to love it. All right. Y'all are culturally homogenous. You, you, you agree on a lot of things. You know, they're, they're going to absolutely love it. Share it with those three people. Okay. And yeah, that's it for the episode. So I'll let you know what I decide with regards to the whole crypto mining stuff. I, I do, if I do decide to jump into it, you know, I'm going to be doing more of a done for you option. Okay. So I'm not going to be doing it a hundred percent by myself. You know, I, I'm, there's a company that you can buy machines and they'll host it. They'll find the hosting and all that. So I don't have to store it in my house and whatnot. And I, I do, I've been building computers for over 10 years now. I've been building them for, I don't even know how long, maybe 15 years, something crazy like that. But I would love to build my own Bitcoin mining rig and then put it up here in my house, you know, have like 10 graphics cards or seven or eight or whatnot. That'd be, free, that'd be freaking cool. However, um, I think it would drive my wife nuts. I share this, the office space with my wife yet again. I do not have a big enough house to where I have my own office and my own studio. So I share it with my wife and, uh, the noise and the electrical consumption uh, might be enough to drive her crazy. It probably might be enough to drive me crazy. So, you know, I don't, I don't know. I might get into the whole building of it, but for, for right now, at least I don't have an area to put it. So doing a done for you option is probably more, a more turnkey solution is definitely more my speed right now. So if I decide to get into it, I will let you guys know. I'll keep you guys informed of that. Right now, I'm still trying to research all the risks associated and whatnot with mining. I'm looking more at mining Zcash, Bitcoin, possibly Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, and uh, if there are other cryptos. I mean, there's tons of other cryptos out there that have value. I'd, I'd be interested in mining those too, uh, depending on the whole circumstances of it all. And, uh, and, and all the logistics that, that go into all that. So anyways, that being said, I'll keep you guys informed with, it, with all that. And um, yeah, that's going to be it for the episode. All right. Hey, guys, have a great day. Know the risks. Plan accordingly. I'll see you next time. <laughs>